This morning's lesson, I wanted to um, bring something that has been a uh, burden to me to give. Uh, I've been in a season where I feel the needs, I'm sensitive to the some of the needs of others. And uh, feeling the burden of the brokenness of our fallen world, I promise that this lesson will not be morbid. Uh, as some oft, sometimes often is the case uh, in lessons or preaching on suffering, my hope is that by the end that we come away deeply encouraged and that we have a awareness of where to go in the midst of suffering. And not just personal suffering, but awareness of where to go and lead others in the midst of their suffering. Um, and... Last week on Sunday, just to give a context of why I'm bringing this lesson now, I uh, gave a lesson to the younger guys back in pastor's office on Sunday in Sunday school. The lesson on this lesson on suffering, a lot of the same thoughts that I gave to them, I'm giving now, and I was really affected in that time of teaching, and so that's why I'm bringing it now. I really wanted to go into the Trinity part two, but I think I am participating with the same spirit that led Pastor Kyle to give the lesson or the devotion that he gave on Wednesday, which was about suffering and how joy and suffering can coexist in somebody who has hope. So let me give you an outline I think it's better better for you, the hearers if I give an outline really quick of the things uh, that I want to give in this lesson. And really, these are questions that I've had to wrestle with because of my relationships with other people who have and are now suffering. What is suffering? That's really going to be the first topic. Why is there suffering in this world? What is righteousness? What is God's remedy to suffering? And what does it mean that Christians are called to suffer? And not only that, but to have joy. In the midst of suffering. What in the world? In the eyes and ears of the world, that makes no sense. Okay? When you're surrounded by circumstances that are hardship, trouble, what should be felt in the soul? Turmoil. And joy makes no sense in the midst of darkness. So what is suffering? 
If you distill it down and purify it and see it for what it is, what is it? I think that it's helpful when we do this and we just ask plainly, okay, get to the point. What is the very heart of this thing? I think that sometimes we can talk in abstractions and talk around things and not get to the the very nitty-gritty. And it's unhelpful because it just leads to confusion. But what is suffering? The word means to bear under or to carry like a weight that's on you. To get up underneath something. And it's not necessarily always used in the negative sense in scripture. But when we're talking about the sufferings of this fallen world, that's exactly what we're talking about. The negative sense of this word. It captures, the word itself captures the feeling of suffering. Like a weight that's been placed on you and it's heavy. And it gets to the point where it's painful, uncomfortable. There's grief. Tension. But these things you already knew about suffering. Here's something that perhaps maybe you haven't thought about. In whatever moment of suffering, the weight that is experienced is an experience of lack or loss. Every time. And you can test me. Think of any moment of suffering, whatever it may be. There's something that is lacked, something good that is lacked or lost. And... The world that God created, he created it good. There was a perfection that God created in the account of creation. Okay, and everything existed in harmony and in relationship. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And there was one thing that wasn't good. Man was alone. He lacked. There was a lack. And so God provide, provided. And that was good. When you remove something from a perfect system, you cause suffering. Think about any moment of suffering, big or small. What is happening in the moment? What is happening is that there is something of value that is lost or a desire that is unmet. A desire for something good that is unmet. It could be that you lost an arm and you suffer. It could be that you lost a friend. There's suffering associated with that. A child that cries because they lost a toy. A man who wants to get married who is still remain, remaining unmarried and has that desire, there's a suffering, there's a grief that goes inward. Whatever the case may be, suffering at at the very heart of it is lack or loss. 
It's being in the place of want and need and desire and it going unsatisfied. That's what we feel. Whenever you sigh, like whenever your children made a mess and you have heaped up on you all these pressures from work, the car has the check engine light on and all these things, what happens? That there's a grief inside. And I think that sometimes we categorize suffering to the extreme hardships, right? When actually suffering biblically has a, a, a broader spectrum than just that. And what may be suffering for one person may be not suffering for another. And we all are, have variety. We all have different degrees of suffering. I know somebody that when a dog barks, there's this turmoil inside of him. He suffers. He has mental anguish. He has problems. And some might, because of this categorization of suffering to the only the hardships, might see that as, okay, you just need to get over it. And they become harsh. The truth is, is that no one in this world has a corner on suffering. I've heard Pastor Kyle say this actually one time in a message. Christians don't have the corner on suffering in this world. Everyone suffers. Everyone lives and experiences the fallenness of this broken world. Everyone. Everyone has grief. And a lot of the times we make prejudgments and we have no idea where that person is internally. And a lot, I think more often than what we think, a lot of people, maybe even in this congregation, deeply struggle. And what we need is the God of all grace. To fill lack, loss. I'm kind of jumping the gun, but it's very important, this point that I'm making. It's very important that we don't categorize suffering only to the extreme hardships. In other words, a man shouldn't be sympathizing with a brother who has lost a family member only to come home and then see their children lose a toy and cry about it for that man to say, get over it. Does that make sense? Do you see the discontinuity there? All suffering should be met. Every form of suffering should be met with compassion, patience, and endurance. All suffering should be taken seriously. So this is a very serious topic. 
And so we live in the in this world of want, need, daily pressures, the grief that exists in the heart of man. And just because you need something or that you suffer, it's not because that you have sinned. It's not necessarily that you have sinned and that sin causes suffering. Now, that is the case sometimes. But what happens whenever we feel the inner grief and lack and emptiness, what are we tempted to do? Fill it. Now we are talking about the temptation to sin. Why is there so much suffering? What is the cause of suffering? Can someone tell me? Sin. Here's the next question. What is sin that it causes suffering? What's the nature of sin that it naturally causes suffering? What's sin? Selfishness. It's this being bent inward Selfish ambition. Let's go to James chapter 3. This is one of those texts that get right to the point. In chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 13 in James, it reads this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, that's very important. But I'll hold back right now. Verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self Seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom doesn't descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where there, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion, and listen to this, every evil thing are there. Sin, at its very core, is self-seeking, consuming. Why? Emptiness, craving, 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 consuming, 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 never satisfied. That's the nature of sin. Okay? So sin takes. Now that's important. This is important. Sin at the very root and nature of what it is takes life and doesn't give. And you can, I, I believe that God is, is clear on this 
as we look at a progression of redemption history regarding sin. If you look in Genesis 3, don't, you don't have to turn there. In Genesis 3, what is being told to Adam and Eve at the basic root of it, the lie, the temptation was God's withholding something from you called knowledge and wisdom. And you can get it for yourself. Take it. Take it. And so what did, what did they do? They took it. They took the fruit and ate. They saw that it was desirable. Go to James chapter 4. The first verse. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members you lust and do not have? You do not have. You lack. So you're trying to fill. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. So back to the question. What is the nature of sin that it naturally causes suffering? It takes. And when it, when something is taken from somebody, what do, what happens to them? They suffer. They experience lack and grief. So, continuing with the progression of revelation about the nature of sin. Lamech, one of, one of Cain's sons, down the line, he took for himself wives. Adam and Eve, one of the judgments against them was your desire will be over him and he will rule over you. In other words, this is this taking of a position. The Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. Or how about this? In, in uh, Moses, what, what was the whole reason why they didn't enter into the promised land? He was forcing the water to come out out of anger. He was seeking to take by force. First Samuel, Israel wanted to have a king for themselves. They were going to make for themselves a king. And Samuel's warning them, do not take for yourselves a king. Why? Because the king, if you don't receive him from God, will be like this. He will take your sons and daughters. He will take your wives. And you look at it, it's take, 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 take. This is the world of unrighteousness that we live in. We live in a world of take and grab and therefore, suffering exists. If you look at Genesis 6, what was the nature of the evil that God was talking about for the whole reason why he flooded the earth? The key word is violence. Do you hear suffering in that? So 
So the nature is very important. The nature of sin is take, take, take. And guess what? It will always leave you unsatisfied. We, 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 in any temptation, what's happening? There's something that is felt that you lack, right? And there it is, presented to you. Satan comes, here it is. Fill yourself with this. That's what the temptation was in the garden. And that was what the temptation was in the wilderness with Jesus Christ. He was hungry. Make those stones, loaves of bread. So sin happens out of the experience of lack. It's a response. It's trying to avoid suffering. And usually the people who suffer the most in this world are the weak, the children, the poor, the elderly. In a world of taking and grabbing and violence, those who are strong get the upper hand. It's survival of the fittest. And so it's usually those who are in power and who are unsatiated, they're consuming, unstable within themselves, who cause the most suffering. I'm telling you, the person, the leader that is so easily offended, that is quick-tempered and harsh, is the is the most insecure and causes the most suffering. You look at it from emperors to really bad fathers. Why? They don't have anything in them to give. And so they're taking, they're avoiding inconvenience. I mean, just imagine it. The boss that feels the heat from upper management. Okay? And it's because of that heat, now what's the temptation for him to relate with his employees? Harsh, expectant, rude. Or, let, I mean, easy example are emperors in the past. If you offended them, guess what? You're dead. It could be a father that carries stress home and doesn't endure it in love, which is righteousness, and we're going to get to that. It could be a pastor who feels the pressures of ministry and because of that pressure lays burdens on the people or bullies or conforms to everybody's expectations and then whenever he goes home, guess who suffers? This, what I'm talking about, is the world of unrighteousness that we live in. And it is the reason for suffering. So, 
Is there hope? Is there joy, any joy to be had? You know what? If there was no goodness in this world, we would all be insane. We'd be mad. What is righteousness? If sin is to grab and take for yourself, self in, been inward, what is righteousness? And I think that we tend to think of sin and righteousness, evil and good. Okay, here's a list of all the good things and here's a list of all the bad things. Do the good things and don't do the bad things. It's a, it's a little bit more in-depth than that. Not just a little bit. It's a lot more in-depth than that. If sin is to take and grab, what is righteousness? I'll let you answer it. If, to give. That's right. And not just give, but to go down and give. The righteousness of God is what has been revealed to us in Christ. In Christ, we see righteousness, fulfillment of the law. And we know, He already taught us, right? That the fulfillment of the law is to love. Right? Not bent inward, but outward. Giving of yourself. Right? Not just giving resources here and there, but giving yourself. Romans 12, offer yourself up as living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. What's the nature of this world? Grab and take. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. What is righteousness? What are the works of Christ? Humble, self-giving generosity. He kneels down to touch the leper. He welcomes the children. He advocates for those who are needy. He's not quick-tempered. He's not easily undone. He didn't come to the world to condemn the world. Now, if one of us was God, that probably would have happened. But our God, the way that He is totally different is that God is love. This is that righteousness which has been revealed to us in the works and in the person of Christ. Righteousness is to bless It's to love. It's to fill. There's lacking there. You have the resource. Fill. That's righteousness. And that's how kind of we can kind of tell what calling God has for us is you you live in a in a world of need and we've been given things. And here I hear a cry. From the living room. I know exactly what God wants me to do. And you can take that and stretch that logic into. 
you know, into work, into church, to society. Do you remember what Jesus said that he did that would fulfill all righteousness? Someone answer this. What? Baptize. Okay. What? How is that fulfilling all righteousness? Did he do it so that I can get baptized? Was it just about was it just about water? The answer is no, absolutely not. Now keep this in mind. Go back to creation in the beginning when God created the earth. What covered the face of the earth? Waters. What characterized those waters? Chaos. Void. There was a a chaos about them. Turmoil. Darkness covered the face of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. He filled. He filled the earth with his glory. That was God's plan from the beginning. To fill the earth with his glory. And what does that look like? No lack. No, no need. No suffering was the intention of God in the creation of the world. Okay, fast forward. Oh, by the way, we also read that the Spirit hovered the face of the waters, right? What is that signifying? That God's attention and focus was on this formless void earth, of darkness to do what? To fill it. Okay, fast forward. Oh, by the way, when you fill a need, what happens to the person that has their need met? A type of satisfaction and rest. There was restlessness in those formless void waters. Okay, now go to Noah and the Ark. Which corresponds to that, that flood corresponds to baptism. Okay? We're getting there. In Noah and the ark and the flood, God covered the earth again with waters. That, I mean, were those peaceful waters? No. Again, we see darkness. We see Void, formless, chaos. And a lot of the times, like the Sea of Galilee, we, we see this darkness and storm, right? The waters of chaos, okay? So God preserves Noah and his family in an ark. He delivers humanity from this violent evil that would have destroyed humanity and the earth. So it's at the heart a deliverance. We see judgment. And then what does Noah do? He sends out a dove.
to do what? To go find a place of rest. But the dove came back because it found no place of rest. The water still covered the face of the deep. And then it did find a place of rest. So this is all, this is all foreshadow of something greater. Now, go to John chapter 1. And John has in his mind the beginning. Where there was darkness, when God said, let there be light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it, did not comprehend it. Literally, the darkness couldn't take it by force. In this broken, sin-filled world, again, we have taking by force. And Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world and the glory of God, comes to reverse the curse of suffering. He comes to a world of need and fills it. This is righteousness. So whenever Jesus Christ, in his baptism, said to John, no, we need to do this. This is going to fulfill all righteousness. What was he talking about? What was he doing? He had no need to, to be baptized. He had no sin. He didn't need to repent. This one is the one who was always with God and always shared the glory of God. Always the beloved, always enjoyed joy and peace and the fellowship of the Trinity. So why did he come to earth? He came to earth to bring that glory that he enjoyed to share it with us. In other words, Suffering and sin won't stop God from filling the earth with His glory. And so, John sees the Spirit like a dove fall upon rest, a finding a resting place finally on this earth, this dark, broken, suffering-filled world. There's a place of rest, and that's Jesus. He comes to share that glory. That glory that He has always known to share it with us. And how? Going into the waters. God doesn't stay afar. He doesn't stay at a distance. He comes to meet us in our suffering. That's the point of His baptism. That's the point of fulfilling all righteousness. He comes and unites Himself to us in 
our suffering. So what do we see in the humanity of Christ? Suffering, weeping, hunger, thirst. He joins himself to our suffering and this is what he brings. Joy in the midst of suffering. This is the hope. This is what God wants us to see and know in the midst of our suffering. I love you. I care for you. I'm here. That's what he wants you to know in the midst of your sin. Come to me. You will find rest for your soul. This is God's remedy. What is God's remedy to our suffering? The suffering of the Son of God. In Colossians, in Colossians we read that love binds everything into perfect harmony. At least that's what it reads in ESV. You could say love brings everything into peace, right? What was once in chaos, love brings things together. And so, how did the Father make peace? Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20. The Father made peace by the blood of His Son. How does that bring peace? How does this, in the suffering we talk about, Jesus tells us that God is glorified where and what hour? In John 12, you read about it. The hour of God's glorification, the hour of the Father's glorification was that hour on the cross. It was in the sufferings of Christ that we see the glory of God. How? Because this is the stumbling block to the world. This is an offense. Read about it in 1 Corinthians 1. This is the stumbling block to the Jew and the foolishness to the Greek. Why? Because God, in order to be glory and glorified, they think in terms of greatness, power. So a God that comes down and becomes weak, that's not the God I want. What is it that we see on the cross and particularly about the cross and sufferings of Christ that we see the glory of God. What we see is this, that God really is the fountain of life that he says he is. What we see is bent outwardness. Love. That God really is ase from self to fill, to give life, to love. This is who, remember the lesson on the Trinity. Who is God? Who is God? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father has always been given life to the Son and loving the Son. 
The source of the son's life is the father. And the son has always enjoyed that. And the father has always delighted in the son. And in that fullness, not lack, suffering is against God's nature. It is. There is no lack in God. In that fullness, overflow, creation, redemption, salvation. You cannot undo God like you can an emperor. You can't make him dethroned, unsteady. Even when we think about the anger of God, we must keep in mind, God is not undone. So in the cross, what we see is this fullness. In the cross, we see the Son of God enter into suffering to break it with his fullness. Enter into lack to fill it, overflowing. Entering into darkness, the darkness can't overcome it. What we see on the cross is death undone with life. And the reason, you know, you look at scripture and mortality being swallowed up by life. Death being swallowed up by life. That's what's happening on the cross. And that is the glory of God. So whenever Christ rose from the dead in Romans, it says that he was raised by the glory of the father. Well, why? Does it say that? Well, it's because that is God's glory to give life, to love. That's his glory. And this is what we see on the cross. And so in the proclamation of these realities, this truth, while in the midst of dire circumstances, in darkness, what is it that we see in the proclamation of the gospel? Good news. So that his joy would become our joy. That's what he came to bring. So when the Spirit comes, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ and his glory, what does it do? Pour forth life and love into our hearts. So God joins himself to us in our broken humanity through suffering, death, and condemnation in order to bring to us and through us the glory of God. Imagine really quick if Christ was just an angel, well, then he would have no glory to share with us. He would not have, no, he would not have had glory with the Father from eternity to bring to us. So the motivation in an angel coming to save us would be 
in order to gain a glory that he never had. But look at the motivation of the son. It can't be that. There's no suffering. The sufferings of Christ removes all self-interest. It really is about pouring forth the love of God. And we say, you know, God cares more about his glory than he does them. God does care about his glory, his self-giving glory. And you you go that route, you begin to say things like God doesn't give his glory to anyone. And then you twist scripture. Does he give glory? Does he give his glory? The answer is yes. He does. The glory that I had with you, Father, I have also give given to them. And what glory is that talking about? The joy and fellowship of the Holy Trinity. That's what we enter into. And the Spirit of God will be in us forever. And so God calls us to joy in the midst of suffering with this reality. And without this reality, you may try to endure suffering, but you'll do it begrudgingly or you'll totally avoid it. You'll either be like the Pharisees or you'll be like someone who is totally confused in this world Taking, 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 pleasure, 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 pleasure. Causing suffering. And so, go back to James 1. I only have a couple minutes left. Well, really quick, let me, let me say this. I'm going to quote from 2 Corinthians 4. And just listen. Verse 3. But if even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, that's what we've been talking about, this glory that God reveals to us in the sufferings of Christ, in the person of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in weakness, in brokenness that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed, but not in despair. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our bodies. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, suffering. The inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, 
which is only but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While, now here is how, that eternal weight of glory is felt in the soul. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It is a, as John Owen said, a due contemplation on the glory of Christ that will take out the poison of all the perplexity of this fallen world. It is seeing and knowing who God is in Christ that relieves and reverses suffering. And we are called to participate in that, to relieve suffering. And that's what righteousness is. We get a a summary of the act of righteousness. What is it in the Bible? It says the act of righteousness. There's this culmination of one act that's called the act of righteousness. What is it? It's the cross. And Jesus says to us, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. If you, if you try to gain your life now, you'll lose it. And what of plucking out the eye? What of mortifying the deeds of the flesh? What of repentance? All of these things are turning away from this selfish, suffering-causing sin and turning to righteousness, which is to give life. To do violence to every impulse that I have to do violence. That's repentance. That's righteousness. And when we are doing so, we are being conformed to the image of Christ and participating in his sufferings, which will bring about a sense of this glory. Let's pray.